So, uh, yes, today was our ugliest tie contest. I know not everyone participated, but we did have um, some guys do it. And uh, one over the top went a little further than needed to. Um, and so I've been told that I have to award him with the, with the prize. So, Derek, if you'd come up on stage and show off your, your uh, beautiful tie. The message was uh, missed in translation. It was ugly tie, not beautiful tie day. And the picture on there is quite beautiful. If you don't have a chance, you can't see from your arm, make sure you come and see. It's a legendary beard, a bearded man. Uh, um, looks very familiar to me. I see that man every day in the mirror. Um, that's a great thing. So, so whose idea was it to get the tie? Oh, it was. So, um, and um, do you feel like you should win this prize? Absolutely. Okay. All right. Well, here, here's the deal. Um, I, got, I got a couple prizes for you to pick from. We didn't know how many we'd have. And so um, your choice between a grilling set or a all-you-can Milwaukee 11 one screwdriver. I'll what would you? The, yeah, I'll take the screwdriver. All right. Fantastic. Give uh, Derek a hand right there. Thank you, Derek. So last week, a uh, pretty amazing time. How many went down to the creek with baptisms last week? Several of you did. I know several of you missed out on that. Um, it was a great moment to see people publicly declaring that they are loved by God. Sons and daughters of God. Uh, and as each person came out to us to meet us in the middle of the river or the creek there, it was a moment for me to tell them that they would be able to look back at that moment and, and remember that God loves them. And that no matter what the world might name them, the name Beloved was the name given by God and that no one could take that away. It was also a great moment for the rest of us that were able to, to take the moment to come down and enter into the water and remember our own baptism. It's something new that we did this year and that we're going to continue to do as a community. It's a sacrament that as a church we want to practice, a continual reminder of the fact that we are loved by God, by the creator of the universe. Also want to say uh, congratulations to Ben and Brene King. The two of them got married yesterday. Congratulations to you. And that brings us to today. Happy Father's Day once again. I want to thank those who helped prepare the meal, who came early to make the coffee bar what it was. I hope everyone had a chance to be a part of that and enjoy that treat. So many people gave up time and uh, prepared that food this weekend and then came early this morning. Thank you. Yes, thanks, Mike. And congratulations to, to Derek. Uh, um, and so I know, I, I know I feel like I say this every Father's Day, but why is it that the gifts that we give on Father's Day or the prizes that we hand out uh, are always revolving around work, right? You know what I'm saying? Like, I love to grill and I love to play with tools, but sometimes I think dads, we get tricked into working. And here's the thing. I picked out those prizes too, right? You know, I'm like, I would want this, right? But somehow we're, we're tricked into this. I don't think that would have gone as well on Mother's Day, right? Could you imagine if we would have had an ugly apron contest? And let me say, not that aprons are worn only by moms, uh, but you know what I mean. If, but let's say that we had that kind of gender offensive contest and, and we gave out like new spatulas or, or a rolling pin, right? People still use rolling pins, do they? But, but, you know, or congratulations on the ugly apron. Here's a mop, right? I don't, I don't think that would go over so well. But for some reason, dads get gifts that require work. So happy Father's Day, 
go cook dinner or congratulations on your ugly tie. Now go tighten all the screws in our house. Uh But dads are like, hey, we're cool with it. Uh, We want it, right? So, but, but I'm thinking of this, like the reason I became a dad was so that I wouldn't have to work anymore, right? You know, I, here I gave you four little workers to help mow the lawn and clean the house, right? But here's the sad reality. I had to teach my 12-year-old son how to load the dishwasher the other day. Like, 12 years old. Like, he didn't know how to load the dishwasher. I'm like, you take a dirty dish from here and you put it in here, right? I'm like, I'm like I, don't, I don't get what's going on. You're in robotics class. You build robots out of Legos and you don't know how to load a dishwasher, right? You know? And so I'm not sure I'm winning, winning in the dad area in this moment there. Um, but, but happy Father's Day to all of you that are trying Uh, Let's pick up back in our story that we are in. It's a story of God told to us by a tax collector named Matthew. And we're in chapter 14. So if you want to turn to Matthew chapter 14. Last time when we read two weeks ago, Jesus had just got the news that his friend and his cousin, John the Baptist, had been killed. And so Jesus was trying to find a place to be alone, to to grieve. And all of a sudden, a crowd of 5,000 plus hungry people to show up. And I love how the author N.T. Wright puts it. He says that Jesus' sorrow for for John and and even for himself was turned into compassion for the crowd as he met their need. And Jesus performs the miracle of feeding 5,000 people with just a few loaves and a few pieces of fish. So Matthew chapter 14, we're going to pick up in verse 22 of our story. It should be on the screen behind me as well. Verse 22. Immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side. While he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up to the mountainside by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat was already considerable distance from land. Buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. During the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said, take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. Lord, is it you? Peter replied. Tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. And Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. He began to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when he climbed into the boat, the wind died down. And those who were in the boat worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the son of God. When they had crossed over, they landed on Genesaret, where the men of the place recognized Jesus and sent word to all the surrounding country. People brought all their sick to him and begged him to heal the sick. By just touching the edge of his cloak, and all who touched him were healed. Anyone remember back when you were a kid, dad trying to get you to do something stupid, right? You know, like, you know, or, or something like when mom wasn't around, you know, he'd say, hey, jump off this. Or, like, you know, or try something, like, try this, eat this, touch that, right? You know, just jump, I'll catch you, I'll save you. I think most dads, if we were honest, we kind of consider ourselves some sort of a superhero, right? You know, in, in our minds, right? Like, and we, we test it on the kids, right? You'll be fine. I'll catch you. Just jump. Well, that's what I see happening in the story, right? Jesus is like, come on out, Peter. You'll be fine, right? Trust me. 
And Peter believes and he gets out and he starts walking on the water and then his eyes shift from Jesus and he realizes that he's out walking on water and he gets scared and he starts to sink and he cries out, save me. And last minute, what do dads do? We make a save, right? We reach out and we save them. It's like those dad save videos on YouTube. You ever seen those dad save videos? Kind of like, like this one. Watch this. But yeah, for some reason, dads, we find a way to, to save the day, right? To be a hero. But there's something else in this story that I want to look at that I want to focus on. And that's one word, and that's in the verse 31 of the NIV. And it puts the word doubt in there. Why did you doubt? How many of you, when it comes to faith, your journey with God have had doubts? How many of you? Some of you right now are doubting whether or not you should raise your hand, right, to admit that you have doubt. And so I'll go first. I often doubt when it comes to faith in God and this whole spiritual thing. I I mean, like some of the stories that we read in scripture, they're ridiculous, right? I mean, Jesus fed 5,000 men and women and and children using five loaves of bread and and two fish, right? And and my questions and struggles and doubts reach further than just the sacred text. This whole Christianity thing or church in general. Like I often wonder, why am I here? Like what, what is it for? Have you ever wondered why you're here? Like, why are you here this morning? Is this like a weekly thing for some of you? Some of you, it's like every other week or every three weeks, four weeks, right? But why are you here today? It's Father's Day, right? And you heard that Father's Day services are usually fun at the Grove. There's always some element of food and you heard about a breakfast burrito bar. And so you're here today, right? You know, or maybe it's the opportunity to win a tool or a cooking utensil, right? Or or something that requires you to work. Maybe you were heard, we were wearing ties today and you're like, finally, the Grove found God, right? And they're wearing ties, you know? But for me, I'm like 30 plus years into this faith journey. And it seems that now I have more questions than I have answers. I read about, uh, and I read about this week, some steps that each one of us take in our spiritual development. And like from the ages uh, of zero to, to, to um, or like seven to 12 is kind of that, that young age, we begin to, to form our belief systems. But it's really not your belief system. It's your parents' belief system or the church that you grew up in. And this is where things, they seem pretty solid. They're black and white. You know, parents said that this is what we believe, and so I believe it. Or this is what the pastor said we believe, and so I believe it. Or this is what someone told me the Bible says, so I believe it because they told me what it said. Even though there are 30,000 Christian denominations in the world because the Bible clearly says. And then you hit puberty, right? 12 to 17, and, like, and they call this the synthetic stage. Questions begin to challenge your belief system. Your personal life, your experience begins to to push up against what people told you to believe. Your worldview that was formed by others begins to take on its own form from your own experiences. But if you grew up in the kind of church that I did, you were taught to suppress those questions, like bury those unsettling feelings, right? The the answers that you were given as a child, they're not adding up to your experience as as a young adult, but you're supposed to suppress that. And then you reach adulthood, 20, 30, 40, greater than 40, right? And this is the reflective stage. You begin to seek answers to your questions. No longer are you living with mom and dad. No, uh, you have gone to college now, perhaps, or you're no longer in the church that you grew up in. You have your own family now, and you begin to think on your own. Because as a kid, your beliefs were your parents' beliefs, but now, and your faith was your parents' faith, but you're an adult now. And your faith has become your own faith. But at the same time, it also belongs to the tribe or the community in which you want to find acceptance. 
your group of friends, the, the new church, your, your own family. Those begin to shape your worldview. The people you're in relationship with now, they help to form your faith and the beliefs that you have to live out. But still for me, and I would bet for you, there are times when you still doubt. You still have questions about God. Something still doesn't make complete sense to you. And there's this unsettling feeling that you get in your personal life experience when it crashes up against what you were told to believe about God and about the world. And this is what I love about Matthew's gospel. This is what I love about the disciples of Jesus. Because it says here in chapter 14 of the story, chapter 14, that they, they, they too doubted, right? But, but everything, rest assured, is going to be okay because that's not how the story ends, right? We're only 14 chapters into it. There are 14 more chapters of this story in Matthew spanning across Three years of the disciples being with Jesus, literally living life with the Son of God. They were getting all the answers they needed about the meaning of life and the meaning of faith. So it's all going to be okay. So we're going to fast forward to the end of Matthew's gospel, and we're going to see that the disciples had finally solidified their faith. And they knew exactly who God was and what it meant to follow him. So let, let me show you chapter 28, starting in verse 18. This is familiar to many of you. If you grew up in church, you recognize these verses. Verse 18 says, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is what traditionally the church has called the Great Commission. Jesus is commissioning his followers to go and make more followers to baptize them, to teach them to obey, teach them to to get it right, right? To make disciples and get it right, just like we got it right, just like the disciples had finally gotten it right. As a teenager in church, I was taught to memorize this. Like this was the great commission. This was my mission as a Christian. This is what we were called to do. Take the faith that we were taught, the things that we were taught to believe, and with confidence, go out and preach and baptize. I was trained to be sure of what I believed or what they taught me to believe and to never ask questions because faith means you believe and never doubt. And we are commissioned to go out and share that faith. The problem is, is now that I'm older, I've read the Bible for myself and I've realized the great commission that we read in Matthew 28, starting in verse 18, actually starts in verse 16. And this is where things get messy and beautiful all in the same time. Let me read verse 16. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When he saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. It says, they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. These were the disciples of Jesus. This was the end of their time with Jesus. They had learned everything they needed to learn. They were graduating, right? They were now being sent into the world. And some doubted. Like if I were Jesus, I'd be pretty annoyed with this group of guys by now, right? Like what in the name of me is wrong with you guys, right? You know, are you serious? I just rose from the dead. Uh, That's it. There's, there's nothing left in my bag, right? I, I'm out of tricks. I can't top the resurrection, fellas. That's all I got. And still some 
doubted. A couple things stick out to me that tells me that Matthew, that what he really wants us to see in this. First, in verse 16, he says the 11. That's huge. It's the first time that's used. Weren't there 12 disciples? And we know from further studies that there were more than 12 disciples and more apostles. But in the beginning, there were 12. The inner circle for Jesus. And I think Matthew, he says this intentionally. He wants to communicate, you know what? Things aren't all good right now in this moment. Because one of us is missing. One of us is no longer here. For some of us, we're unsettled. See, just a chapter ago, there were 12 of us. We were like brothers. We're, we're still like brothers, but we're one down. We're one short. One of our brothers is gone. Why? What's going on here? What is this about? And then the other part of this is, and I so appreciate Matthew here, that he included this at the end of the story. Like chapter 14, the disciples doubted. Yeah, I get it. That makes sense. They're only a little, they've only spent a little time. They're just getting to know Jesus, right? They're new to the faith. 14 chapters later, full of miracles, healing, signs, wonders, teachings, worship services. Some worshiped, some doubted. Well, maybe Matthew put this in here just to to validate everything that he said up to this point. Like, if he was making this up, this is where I think he would probably lie, right? Like, it's not a good marketing strategy to show at the end of the story there were still some people who didn't believe, right? Like, not just some people, but some of the disciples still doubted. Like, if you're trying to sell Jesus, like in this Jesus thing, this is not the best way to do it, right? Yeah, we were with him. Yeah, we saw him heal a blind guy, feed 5,000 people with five loaves, two fish. We saw him alive one day, die the next, back from the dead the next day. You know, we saw that, but yeah, we don't believe it. But you should. It'll work for you, right? Some of us just, are just skeptics, right? But you should believe. What I think Matthew is doing here in this moment is exactly what Jesus wants him to do. To show us what it means to be fully human. To be fully alive. To understand that, that to really believe, there are going to be times when you doubt. To be certain of things is okay to be uncertain. To hold on to your faith means to have open hands. There will be moments of black and white and clear and unclear and certainty and uncertainty, but there will also be moments where you don't know up from down. Authentic spirituality is moving us into a fullness of life. And faith exists alongside of doubt. People are messy. Faith is messy. The history of our faith is wrought with mess. And the power of the gospel and the power of Jesus leads us into what it means to be fully human. And so we will go through seasons of deconstruction with our faith. We must. Richard Rohr uses the metaphor of three boxes. He says the first box, and you'll see it behind me, the first box is called order. The second box is called disorder. And the third box is called reorder. Hey, put the phone down. Need the... Need the image up on top. Thank you. There it is. Order, disorder, reorder. I'm sorry I called you out on that, Don. Box one. Order. This is where many of us who grew up in church, those of us from the Bible Belt, traditional churches, conservative churches, contemporary churches, we live in this box. I spent most of my life in this box. Those of us that grew up in the same tradition as me, we were taught to live in this box. This is all we knew. 
This is the faith that was given to us as a child. This is your parents' faith. This is where we learn to say, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. Even though most of us had no idea that the Bible said it, or where it said it, or that it even said it at all. We all start in the first box. This is where we're insistent that there is order. And it could even be a false sense of order, especially when challenged by our personal experiences. But it was order nonetheless. Because in box one, we're, we're happy and we're safe. But then box two, come, along comes the postmodern era, right? And now everybody wants to deconstruct everything. This is why I don't believe that anymore. This is why I don't believe this anymore. This is why I can no longer agree with you. And here's why. And it's the cynical life, the skeptical view of life and faith. But here's the problem. Neither box one or box two are the places where you want to live. But we choose to live there anyways. Box one, we don't ask the questions. Box two, we don't believe the answers. Box one, we won't, we won't question what we were told is true. Box two, we won't listen even if it is true. But the goal of our spiritual life, Roar goes on to say, is meant to be lived in the third box. But unfortunately, there is no direct flight from box one to box three. The full experience of humanity, the full experience of faith, the full experience of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is why in many traditions you hear the phrase, we are saved by Jesus' death and resurrection. The full experience of the death and resurrection is when we allow grace and life and love and friendship and forgiveness. When we allow all of that to lead us through box number two into the third box. This is the complete story of God that he told us in the sacred text. From Genesis to the Gospels, there was law, there were sacrifices. We thought that we would please God or at least the understanding of who we thought God was. But then the prophets came along and they messed everything up and they said, you're doing it wrong. God doesn't want your sacrifice. You're missing the point. You're missing God. And God sends Jesus not to change God's mind about us, but to change our minds about who God is. See, Jesus came to reorder our lives, to understand that it is about loving God and loving others, that this is how we should live our lives and this is why we believe. And after all of that, some worshiped and some doubted. Okay, so what does this have to do with me? Me as a follower of Jesus, me as a teacher and a pastor, me as a father of four loud kids. That our faith journey should end up in the third box. But, hear me, it is extremely important that we experience the first and second box along the way. You see, some of us were afraid to leave the first box. It feels like we're being unfaithful. It's not right to question. It's not right to doubt. I'm not, I'm no longer a Christian if I leave the first box. But here's the reality. The first box works great when you're a kid and even a, even a teenager. It holds us together. It gives us focus. It gives us direction and zeal and our righteousness. And there's nothing wrong with being in the first box. The problem is when you choose to live there. Because when you and I experience life, when we confront the world, what's in box number one, it doesn't work. If we were honest with ourselves, we still have questions and doubts about God. 
We have to grow up. We have to suffer the reality. We have to get on the cross with Jesus because it's only through his death do we find his resurrection. And again, the problem is that we were raised to live in box number one. But we need to teach people to get from box number one to the third box by going through the second box. And we can't start, but we can't start in the second box, which is a real problem with today's youth because they just want to start in the disorder. They just want to deconstruct everything. And so parents, fathers today, mothers, I implore you, we need to start with the first box. We need to start with the stories of our faith. We need to read our kids the stories and we need to teach them our faith. Tell them the way that you were told. They need to visualize the story. They need the basic order and structure and the purpose of life first. But preface the story with this. This is a story and God wants you to move around. He wants to tell you something about himself in this story. That God is inviting you into this story to move around, to look, to ask. Fathers, mothers, teachers, don't be dogmatic, ritualistic, literalistic with any of this. Invite them to engage the story and move around the inside the story. And, and, but don't throw out the story. I heard one person say this week that when their kid asked them, well, did that really happen in the Bible the way it says? His response, it doesn't matter because I know it's true. And so you read them the story of the garden and your kid says, that's not true. Animals don't talk. You say, okay. So what is God teaching us then in this story? Because as a kid, I feel like I was taught not to ask those questions. This generation is not afraid to ask those questions. But they need the awe and the wonder and the mystery of the, that the story brings. Did the prodigal son really take his inheritance and run off to a distant country and end up eating pig's food? And then when he got home, his dad gave him a huge party. Did that really happen? Son doesn't matter. I know the story's true, that God loves you no matter what. Nothing can separate you from his love. And you were always a son and daughter of God. You never stopped being that. And God wants to use this story to remind you that no matter what, you will always be my daughter. You will always be my son. And I will always love you. And you can't earn it by working in your father's backyard. And you can't lose it by running around in the distant land. You're always my child and I love you. You see, doubt will always be a part of faith. And order moves us to disorder, which moves us to reorder to a new life, to a new understanding of who God is. Our paths will be marked by moments of confusion, and disorientation and doubt, but we need to own it. We need to be aware of the box that we're living in. And realize that things don't always fit into that box. Because it says, some worshipped and some doubted. And some pieces of our faith will go unresolved. Some questions we won't find answers to. And the quote says, the first half of our life is about building a stronger container. 
The second half is about discovering the contents the container was meant to hold. Yet, far too often, solidifying one's personal container becomes a substitute for finding the contents themselves. Some worshipped and some doubted. And what did he say to the next, what's the next thing he says to that group? He says, okay, to the ones that worshipped, I want you to go and make disciples. You, you, not you, you and you, right? You worshipped, go. No, he says to all of them, those who worshipped and those who doubted, to go and make disciples and I will be with you always. Fathers, today you are commissioned to go and make disciples. And it starts in your home. And you don't have to have all the answers. In fact, your kids need to know that you don't have all the answers. Because you are not a superhero. You're a father. And it's okay being a mortal. So to all our dads, we love you. We're behind you. We support you. Keep doing your dad thing. Keep making your dad saves. Keep teaching your kids the faith, but make sure to remind them that doubt is a part of it. Join me in prayer. God, thank you for today. Thank you for the story that we're invited in to engage, the story that reconciles us back to you. That you sent your son into this world to show us how much you love us. God, for so loved the world that you sent your son. Today, with those that have lost a father in recent years, we grieve together. Use us as a community to wrap our arms around those that have experienced that loss. For those today that are new to fatherhood, we celebrate together. May we surround them and take their hands and hold them up when they're, when they're weak and strengthen. Give them courage to keep going. And for the rest of us, to be, to not to be, mothers, single moms, single dads, grandparents, may we as a community learn what it means to love God and to love others. In your name we pray, amen. Guys, we'll see you next week.